You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. We always appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's episode. Just a couple of quick notes. Get on iTunes, leave us a rating and review. Guys, these reviews and ratings mean so much to us. They let us know how we're doing with the show, what you like, but furthermore, it helps spread the word about the podcast and we get more and more listeners each and every week. And you could tell a friend about the podcast, encourage someone else to listen, whether they're a veteran or not, whether they're military or not. I'm sure they'll enjoy the stories of America's heroes. So see if you can get somebody else to join you as part of the Hazard Ground audience. I want to take a quick second to thank all of our sponsors, Patagonia. We also have Blue Apron, On It, 510, Moose Jaw, Mountain Gear, Hydro Flask, and CSS Uncharted Supply Company. These are all people who support the podcast, and we certainly appreciate it, but we want you guys to use them. These are products that we use here at the Hazard Ground, and we certainly appreciate it. Uh, their support, but you guys also supporting our sponsors because uh, we're all tied into this thing together. Finally, just a quick second to let you guys know about the SHARE initiative at the Shepherd Center. You may have heard me talk about this before, but the SHARE Military Initiative, this is absolutely the best organization, not only in America, but anywhere in the world that I've heard of at taking care of veterans. And we're talking about guys who have PTSD, traumatic brain injury, whatever it may be. The SHARE Military Initiative they will absolutely change the lives of veterans. And I mean, like, you get to go and live there cost-free for as long as you need to to get your life back on track. So if you know a veteran or somebody who's struggling, a veteran who is struggling with life, PTSD, thinking about suicide, whatever it may be, find the SHARE Military Initiative at the Shepherd Center online at shepherd.org, and these folks will absolutely save the life of somebody who is struggling. This is the best military veterans organization out there, and I guarantee you they will change the life of that veteran who is struggling. Again, the Share Military Initiative. Check them out online, shepherd.org, the place to go. Now on to this week's guest is part of a story that we've told several times before, the Battle of Wei in Vietnam, yet we get another perspective on it from a guy who spent some of the toughest parts of the battle in Vietnam during Wei 1968. He is former Marine Lance Corporal Richard Prince on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Richard, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Let's start back at the beginning. Tell me how you got into the Marine Corps. Well, at 18, I couldn't get a job in Washington, D.C. Uh, the only jobs that was available was either washing dishes or cleaning up restaurants or it wasn't a good job. I just finished school and just couldn't get a good job. So I went down to the um, recruiter's office, Seventh and Half Street in Washington, D.C., walked in and saw this well dressed, clean Marine. I saw the Navy guy, I saw the Air Force guy, I saw an Army guy. But the Marine was clean. He was he was so neat. He was really he had my heart from the beginning. When I walked in, I said, Oh, I gotta be one of them. They gave me a test. I took the test. I passed it. Hundred and eighty days later, I think it was, I think I had to wait. Hundred and twenty days of it. 
I had to wait for a while before I got to go. I was um, sent out to um, Baltimore uh, for Hollaberg and then sent to Camp Pendleton. I mean, I'm sorry, to Paris Island in South Carolina. We arrived about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night on the bus. We was all called off the bus. And for the first time, we got screamed at real good. But they made men of us. They made us all men that we follow a leader and we follow orders. And that is the purpose of the boot camp. After completing the boot camp, I was sent up to to uh, Camp Lejeune. On that, they have a little base called Camp Gagger, and we went to advanced training there. Upon completing that advanced training, they allowed me to go home for two weeks. I went home, saw my family, my mother and father, my sisters and brothers, and I was on the plane again. This time, back to Camp Pendleton. In Camp Pendleton, California, I was part of a replacement battalion. People that I had been training with, I knew, and they knew me. So we went through some more training there. And after the training was over, I said, you know, I have a brother in Vietnam. I told the sergeant. And they said, well, we're going to send two brothers at the same time. Now we're going to pull you off this this rotation. So they did. And I pulled guard duty for a while. But all my friends was already gone. It was lonely. Everybody I knew was already in Vietnam. So I asked the sergeant to let me go. I signed a waiver and... They put me on plane. Next thing I know, I was in Camp Butler in Okinawa. One day they called my name and said, pack your stuff, you're going on a plane to Vietnam. We got on a plane to Vietnam and arrived in Vietnam in November 1967. And we arrived there, and for the first time we heard and then rounds go off. We jumped off the plane very quickly, headed for bunkers, and there had artillery going off so much. And um, it, it was frightening. It was frightening. Um, the next morning, we were trained with M14. Next morning, um, truck came around to pick us up. Each unit got so many men. When I was going to was one five Delta, so they put me on on truck. I'm sitting there. And I'm where's my weapon? You know, I'm in combat area. Where's my weapon? No one's giving me a weapon. The only two people that had weapons on that on that truck was the shotgun and the, the driver. And I said, you know, we're gonna get killed. We only have a weapon. We went on. We made it to a place called Hoi An, where combat base was there, safely. 
we got off the truck, and they handed us the M16 the first time. I don't want this little toy. I don't. I, I want my M16. Yeah, I'm, I'm 14. I, I don't want this. But soon I realized the M16 would do the job. And we went on patrol around when, and we had different uh, episodes. And Lieutenant, we got pinned down the rice paddy. Sniper rounds coming in. What about weapons? And we pinned down there, and the Lieutenant called in the airstrike. But what made amazing about him was he got up and he said, follow me. You probably have seen that commercial. Follow you? I mean, my goodness. I figure out that this man, no, well, he doesn't want to get hurt. I'm going to follow him. I got up, as everybody else in that rice paddy, and we got a rice paddy. We got a tree line, and we had to call for Amtrak's to come out and get us and bring us back in. But that was a heroin experience there. Richard, um, let, let me let me ask you a question real quick. Sure. Um, you know, when you enlisted, did you have any reservations about being a black man going to fight in Vietnam? Because there weren't a lot of guys who were drafted or even guys who enlisted at that time who were African-Americans. Did, was any of that in your mind prior to going? No, I, that was not even in my mind. I, I didn't know uh, that the Marine Corps was one of the branches that did not have a lot of blacks in it until I got to Paris Island. When I got there, my platoon only had about four black males. But I, the drill instructor, treated me the same as everybody else in my platoon, each and every one of the drill instructors. I never got single-out or picked on or I didn't feel everybody got picked on. If you want to be picked on, everybody got got to serve their country, and you 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 have to go through that particular training in that manner in which they do it, so that on the battlefield you don't ask the sergeant why you simply do what he told you to do because that's how you survive. But some people can't do that. It takes time to learn it. But by the time you get into a battle, you know why you're doing what you're doing. You know that you've been told by orders. You are to follow the orders of the officer appointed over you. You follow those orders. So take me back to the Battle of Way in 1968 and your involvement with that battle. How did you get there? What happened? Give me all the details. I was signed up in I-Corps. I-Corps is the northernmost area. Um, from there, uh, in, in um, January, when Tet began, uh, I was sent up north to uh, Way City along with my unit. We joined the battle at Way. Um, they were, you know, we never fought like that before because it was 
door to door, house to house. Um, I was on one side of the river and came over to the other side by um, a military vehicle on the water along my unit. And we moved up to to, to way to to the um, citadel, going house to house. We had a lot of people that was injured and wounded and killed. Um, it, it was uh, pretty pretty bad for a while. By the time we got to the citadel, my unit. Um, the first night, one of the companies went up to to the um, on top of the citadel on, on top of the Dunbar Tower, basically. At that Dunbar Tower, uh, they was eventually routed off the tower. We had people wounded up there because it was raining and uh, misty and cold. We couldn't get an airstrike in. So that we eventually got some artillery up in that area. We had left uh, men up on the tower that was wounded. Uh, one individual was buried alive over the night, uh, Tom Zato. Um, the next morning, I went up, and I was at the bottom of a column of men. And um, as I was heading certain wounded people down to where I was as I looked at them and did the best I could to stop the bleeding and get them on down further down to the dock. The um, corpsman who could probably help them a little bit better than I could. Eventually I got to the top. After about three of these people getting down, I got to the top. I got called over uh, by one of the squad leaders and he said look at this and I looked out and saw a man's hand I began to try to move the rubble from around him as my squad leader did the same it wasn't fast enough for me that was too slow so I reached down and uh, got into the rubble and pulled him up by his flight jacket I pulled him to the top and put him on my shoulder and began to bring him down the Dunbar Tower area. I was receiving rounds. I lost my helmet. And I said, no, this is not good. You know, we both can get hit. So I put him down and I began to drag him down. Um, I got him to the bottom of that tower where I turned him over to Corman and they took care of it from there on. But the number of people that I brought down was a total of about four. The, I went back up to to where I was at and con- continued the battle. Eventually getting out onto the street and going up the street, we set in for the night in some houses and we spread out. I received a couple of new men that joined me. We had, had so many people wounded in KIAs that it was very difficult to uh, to keep track of everybody. 
I did not know, I knew my squad leader, but I didn't know squad sergeant, platoon sergeant, because they, they had changed so quickly. The officers who, most of them had gotten either wounded or killed, so we was in pretty bad shape. Uh, we eventually did this house-to-house fighting, and uh, I came along a brick wall along with four other men, and I, by the fact that I was the last corporal, I suddenly had a squad. And uh, we were shooting over this wall. And then this new guy who came into our unit was telling me that he could not see the enemy. I told him, I didn't care, just fire his weapon in the direction. Uh, down the road, I again, lift my head up and looked over the wall to make sure that we was online with the other people on the right of me. And um, after about the third time, I got hit. I got hit the neck. I went down. I grabbed the bandage and began to bash myself. I did not hear anyone call Corman up. So I figured that most of our Corman either was wounded or busy with other people. I got up and started moving backwards down the street that which came up past the Dunbar Tower. As I got halfway down that area, I ran into some Arvins, that's the Vietnamese Army, um, who was doing a sweep, sweeping up towards us, picking up weapons and wounded people. They saw me and um, put me on a mule's uh, vehicle, that little tractor, and it took me to an aid station, American aid station. They immediately began to work on me. I knew I was hurt pretty bad. So uh, I was being given my last rites. Strangely, as it may seem, I was brought up a Baptist and I had two sets of dog tags. One said Catholic, one said Baptist. Um, because I had switched over and this 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 uh, clergy I didn't know really use a, a a priest or Baptist preacher, but he was giving me my last rites, I knew that for sure. And I reached out and grabbed him. And I with all the power and strength I had in my hands, I told him that I believe in God because it was a time, this was the time for me to let him know that I was prepared to go. And it was very, you know, very emotional. Um, after that, I remember being put on the helicopter. It was freezing cold. They had taken all my clothes off. Um, and, uh, I was flown down to um, Fubai. And Fubai, I was again operated on there. I think maybe a day went by and it took me to board the USS Repos. It's a hospital ship. It was out in South China Sea. Being placed on a hospital ship, the other emotional thing that happened to me was this 19-year-old young, maybe 17, 
about that he may have been 19, white male, looked down at me and began to take care of me. He brushed my teeth, he washed me from head to toe, he combed my hair. He did everything as if uh, I was a baby or a child that he was taking care of. And I never met or saw the man again. But that young man was a real corpsman. He didn't care what color you were or where you came from. He did a job and he did it well. The things that I did back at the tower and as every Marine did, I think was was something that we, as Marines, know. We know that that we were been taught, you know, common um, action is just like a common valor, and everybody did what they supposed to do when they needed to do it, and you don't think about it. Fifty years passed. Fifty years passed in 2012. I came across a DAV magazine, and remembering a a photographer, John Olson, who had taken photographs of myself and other Marines at the tower, I saw some of his photographs. And I said, "Hey, that's me. These pictures are me." So they were, you know, seven, eight pictures. And in one other picture, all these pictures became famous in the fact that they are the unknown Marine who's rescuing another unknown Marine. This unknown Marine who's trying to bandage and uh, help stop the bleeding, another Marine. But nobody knew who I was. I was about to act it out before anyone knew who this person was. And in 2012, I contacted the company commander and battalion commander. I said, hey, look at these photographs and tell me what you think. They did. They said, well, you did a good job. I said, well, thinking selfishly after all these years, I wanted to leave my daughter something. So I asked, I said, do you think that it may qualify for any type of medal? I was told that, you know, you need two witnesses. So it was kind of hard to find a witness, find anybody who had served with you in, in the Marine Corps because you got medevacted out and because you was only there for about five to six months it was difficult to make friends. And you didn't make friends. We had, a, we had a saying that you just don't. The people that you came there with, you're stuck with. The people, the, the new people don't want to. The older people don't want to know the new people. The pain is too great. You cannot go on the battlefield. And she had a tear. You cannot go on the battlefield and cry because your buddy got hurt or your buddy got killed. So you don't want to have that bond. The bond you have is that I have to keep you alive 
and you have to keep me alive. And we're going to do everything we can to do that as much as we can. I don't need to know your name. I don't need to know where you came from. I don't need to know your mother or your father, your sister or your brother. What I do know that on this particular day and night that you, you will give up your life for me. You will not leave me on this battlefield. You will stay with me. You will protect me. I know this because I know that you are a United States Marine and therefore I would do the same for you. With that, I don't know what else I can say about the battle. I don't know what else I can say. We we did what we had to do. We, we accomplished the mission as best we could. But we lost a lot of brothers and a lot of sisters. Not as many sisters, but a lot of brothers there. It didn't matter where they come from. But we do know one thing. They were men. 17, 18, 19 year old. The only thing that I feel sorry for, and it bothers me even to this day, that these men passed away and I'm here and I've been here for 50 years. And I very often ask myself, and I ask the man upstairs, why me? Why did you do this to me? Why did you allow me to stay here? I look around, I look at, well, I got a wife and two daughters. I have a house, I have a car. I have bills, but I pay them. So, what is it? What is it? I don't know, but I know that I had a purpose for being here. And the purpose, I believe, is to tell the truth about the way you feel, to tell the truth about what happened to you, and to always remember the men who've gone before you. With that, I will say, in March, the Greatest Generation Foundation reached out to me. They located me and said, we'll have a round-trip trip back to Vietnam if you would like to go. And I said, free. I said, what? Free. I said, why? Why would you do that? I said, that's what we do. I said, what's the catch? Is there a catch? I said, the only catch is that you have to have a passport. I quickly got my passport. I quickly prepared myself, and I was put on the airplane. I met some great guys. 15 of us, one corpsman and 14 Marines. We hooked up together and we flew out to, to uh, Vietnam. It wasn't a picnic. What we went there for is to get solace, to bring some closure to the pain that we have been living with for those 50 years. And we put some there because each one of us went back to the place where we was either wounded 
most significant battle took place where you lost friends. Each one of us shed a tear. Each one of us got down on our knees and thanked God to be here. But each one of us know that there's a purpose for us all. And whatever it is, whatever it was, I hope that we all have reached that goal. We all have done what the man upstairs wanted us to do. Don't mean to preach, but when you come so close to death, when you have an opportunity to let it be known that you understand, you understand, you understand. That's about all I can tell you about that. When you got back and after your injury and everything else, did any of that linger at all? Did anybody look at you differently as a black man, or were you still just treated the same? And the only reason I, I think asked... that I tried to forget. Uh, I, I sort of forgot about it. I took off my uniform. Uh, I didn't wear it. Uh, I, I just wanted to, to get back to the life I was in, to get a job. And, um, you know, after being in the hospital, after I got back, because I was still recovering from my wounds, I spent a total of about four months in the hospital and eventually getting medically discharged um, from the Marine Corps. But um, I, I, I didn't look at that. I, I just... It, it may have been there. It was a you know problem. People said people spit on them, but I had taken off my uniform. So the only time I wore my uniform was on the base, and therefore I didn't experience that. They didn't know I was in the Marine Corps. Um, I didn't go out and brag about it. Matter of fact, I just I just went ahead and lived my life as best I could trying to get the best job I could at the time because I, you know, I need to survive. Right. Um, and, uh, go, go back to when you were shot in the throat. Did you know what had happened when you got hit? Did you And did you know how bad it was? I knew that I had gotten hit. And the gentleman to the left of me who was new. Uh, I tried to let him know that I had gotten hit. I wasn't able to speak, but I was bleeding, and I just pulled a bandage under my helmet and began to cover myself up, um, try to stop the bleeding. Uh, he didn't say coming up, or he didn't make any time to get any help for me. So I decided to get help for myself. I got up and I left him. And I went back to the direction we had come. He ran to these ovens. But um, they went on. Uh, I found out later this guy did survive. <laughs> um, so he he's okay. But um, there were so many others. There's so many others that didn't 
And did I know how serious I was? I knew I was I was hurt, but I was able to walk. I didn't go unconscious. So I I guess maybe if it wasn't for the ovens helping me, I may not have been able to make it all the way back there. They got me back to the aid station quickly. When you took the trip back to Vietnam 50 years later, did it give you the closure you were looking for? It helped. Uh, when we when we arrived in Vietnam, there was no problem for me. We went to several other locations, and some of the guys broke down. Um, by the time I got to Way, it was my day to go to the um, Dunbar Tower. But that night we arrived, we were sitting in the dining room, and I'm facing out, I'm looking at the Dunbar Tower. Light is shining up. Flag, communist flag, flying over it. As I look over there, I began to be unable to control my emotions. I began to cry, weep. I finally asked the Marine that was across from me, would he please change places so I would not be able to look at the tower? He said, sure, Prince. I went over, took his seat. I wasn't able to look at it. And I got over it that day, got over it. Went to bed after dinner and thought about it. But I looked at this tower and there's light shining up. If you ever get there, please go. Um, there's a light shining up straight up in the air. And it went straight up from the tower where I had been back in 1968, on that February 15th. And I remember these guys up there, and I remember just breaking down again. And just, 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 just unbearable. But that was the closure. That was it. That was the thing that needed to be done. The next morning, we went out over there. Again, we retraced my steps where I had been, where I had gone to. Again, you know, those tears could not be stopped. They had to come out. They came out. Thank goodness, I, I think that. Vietnam is not the way I remember it. That was pretty much destroyed when I was there. Today, 50 years later, like a modern city. People look like they're pretty friendly. They were very friendly to us. We had talked to uh, some of the kids. We had talked to some of the the VC. The Vietnam Army, North Vietnam Army personnel um, they they wanted to shake your hand and be friends 
they understood that war was one thing. There's peace. So I don't think they held anything against me. I didn't hold anything against them. And, you know, but what can you do? You live your life, and they need to live theirs. But it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful but yet sad situation that when it's at the end, it works itself out. It works itself out. Have you been have, have you been able to answer the question that you asked earlier about why me? Why did God spare you? Have you have you been able to reconcile that? I have. To, I have. I I tell my wife. I say, you know, when I was laying on that table after I was wounded, and the doctor and the priest was giving me my last rites, I believe that you was praying for a husband. God said, I have one for you. had ups and downs, bounds and bounds, but we've been married for 46 years. That's quite an accomplishment. But she was, she's a Christian and she's very much into the church. But I think more than anything else, she was in a bad situation and she needed help. I was that person who went there found her and brought her here and gave her a better life. And I think that was all prearranged. I really believe that's prearranged. I don't think that was a mistake. Doesn't sound as like it. As far as the other Marines, I didn't get to see any of the guys that I served with. None of them I have seen since the day I left Vietnam. But the other Marines that I did see have gone through this without same thing I went through and probably worse. And I, if it wasn't for this organization, the Greatest Generation Foundation, if it wasn't for them, I don't know why the military don't do this. I don't understand why you send men out to war, bring them back, and say, okay, we'll send you to a um, clinic so you can go uh, talk to a psychiatrist. Take them back. Take them back because nobody's shooting at them now. Take them back and let them go ahead. And, and what those things that they held in for so many years, they're now able to release. And that's about it, I think. I mean, I can't think of much more to say about that. No, I mean, it's listen, it's it's perfectly said. I think you're 100% correct. It's something that we should do more often uh, to provide the closure that people need. So, uh, Mr. Prince, it's an incredibly, you know, brave story, and it is one that I'm very proud and honored to have heard you tell. And, and certainly, you know, hearing you tell it gives it so much life. So I thank you for uh, for all your honesty. It's quite all right, sir. I appreciate you allowing me to tell it. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Mr. Prince. I appreciate it, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. God bless you, sir. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. 
If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.